You're listening to El Clásico, the cycling podcast at the 2023 Vuelta España from Barcelona to Madrid. Today we are in Bejes. You are indeed listening to El Clásico. My name is Daniel Freeber. I am the host of this episode and I am in, well, not quite apt on Bejes. I'm in the valley beneath the Bejes climb. Today I will dispense with the usual frivolity in my intro simply because it's been a sombre, concerning day on the Vuelta following the news this morning that the Jumbo Visma rider Nathan van Hooydonk had suffered very serious injuries and was in a critical condition following a car crash that reportedly happened, well it did happen, near Antwerp. Um, this after van Hooydonk had reportedly uh, lost consciousness at the wheel. Lionel Burney, you are joining me this evening. We have had slightly better news but um, yes it was certainly very well as I said sombre and we were all worried it wasn't this morning it was actually a very late start today but at the start um, I didn't know what had happened hadn't heard this news until I arrived at the start and I saw uh, sort of a scrum of our mainly Benelux colleagues around the Jumbo Visma team bus waiting to see if there was any more news that could be had there or or waiting to hear what the team had to say about it. Um, well, Lionel, first of all, good evening. Good evening, Daniel. Yes, uh, it's overshadowed the day and influenced the day, I would say, certainly from a Jumbo Visma perspective. Nathan van Hooydonk and Jonas Vingegaard are very good friends, as we know. Van Hooydonk for those who don't know, I mean, he's the nephew of former Tour of Flanders winner Edwig van Hooydonk, and he was obviously part of the Tour de France team that supported Jonas Vingegaard, who won the Tour earlier this summer. And van Hooydonk had just finished the Tour of Britain on Sunday, which his Jumbo Visma teammate Wout van Aert won. Yes, according to the reports, van Hooydonk was in the car with his partner, who is pregnant, and, well, it goes without saying that we wish everybody a full and speedy recovery, but clearly must have been very concerning for the friends and teammates of Van Hooydonk as they set out for you know what was likely to be quite an important stage of this year's welter with the uphill finish at Behez. Yes, Lionel, and particularly, you know, we've talked a lot in the last few days about this being the, the apotheosis for this team, the absolute apogee of what they could achieve, what they have achieved um, so far. You know, we were talking this morning about, you know, in what order they're going to finish in Madrid, um, possibly monopolising the podium, completing this clean sweep of three Grand Tours, both things that have uh, would be completely unprecedented. And then to think that... Well, the team has received such awful news. When they're on the threshold of uh, achieving that, um, it was it was chilling. Um, fortunately, we have got, I think we've got some slightly better news. But Lionel, let's go back to this morning. I mentioned the scene outside the Jumbo Visma bus. Um, their direct sportives, one of their direct sportives in particular, did speak to us briefly. Uh, this is Krisha Nierman this morning. Yeah, the team doesn't know uh, more than that. Uh, there's also in the media. Apparently, uh, he had an accident and uh, and uh, uh, he had to go to hospital. And and uh, he, he is there now in uh, I think induced coma. And uh, yeah, it's very very uh, harsh news for us, for everybody, especially also of course for for the riders and uh, and of course our thoughts are with him and also with his girlfriend. And uh, we all we all hope and, and wish for the best. 
it was with, well, a, a lot on their minds that Jumbo Visma were setting about a stage which was the first chapter in this triple header of very difficult hilly stages, you could call them, certainly tomorrow is a mountain stage, the day after is a mountain stage, and that we're going to determine the outcome of this Vuelta Espana. We think, we're pretty sure, aren't we, that um, the fate of this Vuelta is going to be decided over these three days. You are now going to tell us what happened this afternoon in the tail of the etapa. El resumen de la etapa. The tail of the etapa. Yes, Daniel, stage 16 resuming after the rest day to Bejes. Only a short one, 120 kilometres, with, as I say, the uphill finish coming at the very end. The finish generally does come at the very end. Uh, David de la Cruz of Astana, who was lying 11th this morning, didn't start. He has been ill, so uh, no chance of overhauling a rider or two and getting his way into the top 10 for de la Cruz. Now, the intermediate sprint was not so much intermediate as a kind of an hors d'oeuvre just before the final climb. And that really played quite a significant role in the way the stage uh, played out because Caden Groves in his green jersey was very prominent at the start of the stage clearly wanted to get into whatever the early move was so he would have a chance of taking points perhaps looking over his shoulder well obviously looking over his shoulder worrying whether Remco Evenepoel would score lots of points in the hilly stages Groves wanted to make sure and so he was in the first uh, move which also included Andreas Kron, Andrea Piccolo uh, Matteo Sobrero, Roman Bardet, Max Poole, Roman Gregoire and a few others. And they really didn't get anywhere. They were about 45 seconds ahead at the most. There was a furious chase behind. Ineos Grenadiers were doing quite a bit of the chasing, trying to get, I guess, Omar Freyley in there or somebody like that. Uh, when, with around 78 kilometres to go, the bunch could see the break, Jan Tratnik of Jumbo Visma jumped across and that kind of brought it all back together really Finn Fisher Black of UAE Team Emirates had a little go then the rain started and then there was a period where there were some more attacks uh, Roman Bardet and Matteo Catania tried to go clear then it was Catania and Germani and then finally Catania Caden Groves again for Alperson de Koenig in his green jersey Max Poole again Julius Vandenberg of EF Nicholas Prodom of AG2R and Joel Nicolau of Carural went away Groves achieved his goal of the day by taking maximum points at the intermediate sprint and then it was brought all back together before the bottom of the final climb and then well we'll discuss it at this length what happened on the final climb uh, but Jumbo Visma had it all under control. Attila Valter was doing a power of work there, leading the line. And then with 3.9 kilometers to go, Jonas Vingegaard attacked and he went away and there was no real response. Finn Fisher Black of UAE Team Emirates uh, put up a bit of a fight, but couldn't get on the wheel and couldn't get across. Vingegaard rode away to win the stage ahead of Finn Fisher Black by 43 seconds uh, behind Primoz Roglic also attacked, meaning that it is an unconventional way to defend Sepkus's red jersey, to say the least. Um, but it also means that Kurs's advantage is now only 29 seconds ahead of Vingegaard, who has jumped above Roglic in the overall standings. I mean, there's a little bit of moving and shaking, but just by a sort of handful of seconds either way. So Kurs, when looking at the GC tonight, will just be very aware that his teammate is now breathing down his neck. 
there's no real threat from any of the rival teams. Caden Groves had a really good advantage in the green jersey competition. And Vingegaard closes the gap to Remco Evenepoel in the King of the Mountain jersey. The gap is now just 30 points. But another stage win for Jumbo Visma and for Vingegaard. He won earlier in the race on his daughter's birthday. And he won today, I'm sure, thinking very much about his friend Van Hoydonk and wishing him a very quick and full recovery. Lionel, we'll go into well, the, the sort of intricacies, the tactical intricacies of the way Jumbo Visma rode in a minute. But we should also say, well, you informed me before we started recording that um, Attila Valter gave an interview at the finish in which he said he'd learned and the rest of the team had learned at the foot of the final climb that Nathan van Hooydonk had regained, regained consciousness. Um, Jonas Vingegaard also mentioned well, the fact that van Hooydonk was, was feeling better or doing better um, in his post-race press conference. He also um, described van Hooydonk as his best friend. Um, so it was a very emotional day for him. Um, Lionel, I didn't necessarily expect too much from today's stage. However... I am recording tonight in a valley called the Desfiladero de la Hermida and Lionel. This is just was down the river effectively from a very famous location in Vuelta history, Fuente de, um, scene of uh, uh, a spectacular attack by Alberto Contador, which won him the two. 2012 Vuelta España. It's also, Lionel, just down the road from a, a place or, or a, where a stage finished in 2017 that seemed quite innocuous, uneventful at the time, and that was Santo Toribio de Liebana, Liebana um, won by Sander Arme, but that was the day that Chris Froome gave a positive sample for Sal Butimol. So, uh, there, there are precedents, a bit like Formigal. I mentioned the other day, didn't I, that Formigal is always the scene of big, major drama in the Vuelta Espanol, has been historically. And sure enough, on the stage that started in Formigal the other day, we had Remco Evenepoel's big collapse. And today, I would suggest to, do, to you, Lionel, that we saw an extremely dramatic stage, which will probably how hold consequences for this Vuelta Espanol beyond the time gaps that you mentioned. And I think... Well, that that drama is going to be linked to the politics, the relationships between the great triumvirate leading Jumbo Visma. Uh, so that's Vingegaard, Kuss, and Roglic. Yeah, I mean, what do you make of it though? Because uh, I said it was an unconventional, unorthodox way to defend the red jersey when we were talking just before we recorded, and and it was in one sense. But I think looking from the outside, clearly Jumbo Visma and Jonas Vingegaard in particular, in particular, wanted to ensure that they won the stage and uh, were able to kind of dedicate it to their, their friend and teammate Van Hooydonk. So it was almost as if the sort of GC battle of the welter took second fiddle to that, played second fiddle to that a bit today. I, I don't know whether there was a bit of sheepishness between Roglic and particularly Roglic. Roglic is the, is the move and the the attack that I would like to zero in on. But should we do that after hearing from some of the protagonists? Um, another, you you mentioned or you described the way they defended the jerseys unconventional. It was also unconventional by UAE and particularly Finn Fisher-Black today. The way he gave chase behind Vingegaard and eventually finished second. So we're going to hear from him first and then we'll hear from the stage winner, Jonas Vingegaard, 
and thereafter from the race leader, still the race leader tonight, Sepp Kuss. I don't know, I was, I was quite surprised myself actually. I just, when, he, uh, when Jonas attacked, I just thought uh, I'll go to the front and help uh, Juan to get back on. And we kind of, if we can close the, black, close the gap slowly. But then uh, I looked back and uh, the group wasn't there. And then I heard uh, Diaz on the radio just said, keep going. So I tried to close the gap to Jonas, but it's, this guy's too fast, you know. But uh, yeah. Uh, crazy kick up in the final, so it's, uh, it's nice. In the end, cycling doesn't matter. Uh, what matters for me is uh, that my best friend is, yeah, hopefully getting better. And just when I came here, they, I got news from from the team that he's uh, he is doing better. Uh, so I really hope that. Uh, yeah, that everything will be okay with him and uh, that he will recover from this. Can we even speak about GC or podium or one, two and three right now? Or what do you say? I mean, I think first of all, I just want to enjoy the, 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 the good news, enjoy the victory. And then uh, there's another day tomorrow and then we'll see. It's going to be very close right now between you and Seppa. Yeah, I mean... Sepp is also, tomorrow is more a day for Sepp, so uh, I think, uh, yeah, we, you never know. We knew it would already be a really long fight for the break, and that would make uh, half of the stage already go by, so, um, yeah, it was, it was still a really fast stage in the end, but, but the guys had to pull for, I don't know how long, but, uh, yeah, more or less straightforward to stage to go for, and, yeah, it's a, it's a finish that suits Especially Primoz really well, but but Jonas uh, took everyone by surprise. Uh, we, we we knew, but uh, picked a really good moment to attack and yeah, had another beautiful victory. It was okay for me. I mean, I knew it would be uh, a bit hard for me, especially if it was going for the for the stage win today, to to really hang on because it's so explosive. But uh, no, I'm I'm still happy with with. Uh, how I felt after the rest day and, and on this kind of climb. It's good, I mean, yeah, as, as long as someone in the team wins, uh, yeah, I, I think the, the strongest guy should, should win the race. And uh, today he, he showed that, that he's, he's riding incredibly. Tomorrow's a much different kind of stage. Science in Sport is supporting the cycling podcast at the 2023 Vuelta España. Science in Sport, fueled by science. We heard a bit there from Jonas Vingegaard, Finn Fischer-Black before him, and then Sepkus after him. I can tell you that Vingegaard said in the press conference, and Jonas Vingegaard speaks excellent English, but in these instances, I'm always a bit loath to micro-analyse sound bites just because you, you do have to allow for a certain element of language barrier um he said the team gave us the chance to go for it i i felt good so i went for it but in that the team gave us the chance to go for it he was talking i think the question was about well it was about the three of them and how jumbo visma intended to play their cards it, it can't be as simple as that can it the grisha Neerman this morning uh, again um, putting the sort of context of Nathan van Hooydonk's accident to one side for a second, they can't simply have gone on the bus or had a meeting yesterday in which they laid out how this week was going to work and said, 
you can all go for it <laughs> surely not no possibly not but i mean what they would have talked about on the rest day and then how they approached the stage today bearing in mind uh, what they knew about van hoydonk and at the time that they started the stage they would have been even more concerned uh, than than they they probably are now having heard some more hopeful news uh, i think it, it's you know they're in a fantastic position in the race in that in a way it sort of didn't matter they they weren't conceding uh, any ground all they've done is sort of shuffle the pack a bit they still want to win the Vuelta as a team that's the goal surely from from the team's point of view it has to be a Jumbo Visma rider on the top step of the podium one on the second step and preferably one on the third step and they're still in the same position you could argue they're in in a stronger position because Vingegaard is now further away than the likes of Juan Ayuso and Enric Mas. I, I put it to you that that shouldn't be the only goal. The, the goal should be, well, the main goal, I suppose, is, is top spot on the podium. The clean sweep, I would say, is the third most important goal. The second most important goal is harmony at the end. Maybe that's the most important goal, in fact, because these are all riders who are on long-term contracts and it would be awful, I'm sure, from the management's point of view, if the equilibrium between those three of them, which has been a key facet of this team's success. You know, we talked a few days ago. I mean, I sort of said they'd been lucky in some respects and their scouting's been outstanding. But, you know, Primoz Roglic, it was very difficult to predict that that guy was going to be this era-defining rider that he has been. Um, but their scouting has undeniably been outstanding another thing that's been outstanding is the way they've been able to maintain harmony for a number of years now and and give the riders the give riders the opportunities that they've generally wanted even you know signing guys like dylan van bala signing next year matteo jorgensen um, these are riders who pretty much know that they're going to have to sacrifice themselves a lot of the time yet they're happy to do it and i don't think it's it's just money that is is making them agree to sign on I, so i think that's really important the harmony i don't know if it's possible though and i, and I have even greater doubts about the harmony being maintained after today i don't know because i think you know there's a the big picture harmony and then there's a the smaller picture harmony of you know what do they want to achieve today they wanted to achieve a stage win for nathan van hoydonk vingegaard is uh, van hoydonk he described him as his best friend Vingegaard probably the most likely to be able to attack from four kilometers to go to win the stage than you know Roglic who would probably want to go a little bit closer in or go very close to the line Sepkus in the red jersey going to be completely marked so I suppose you know fairly simple really if they want to win the stage Vingegaard was the rider uh, most likely give him his head with four kilometers to go and the the key for Kuss was that there wasn't the reaction from the other teams that you might have expected. They didn't all come out of the blocks and, um, you know, see that as an opportunity to disappear up the road and gain, well, you know, in the end, a decent chunk of time because uh, Vingegaard finished a minute ahead of the rest of the GC riders. That was the moment for somebody else to to, to ping out and, and mark. Then there might have been some, some kind of disharmony if then... Uh, Roglic and Kuss had, had gone across, but then it would have all concertinaed back up together and it would have been a much more conventional race. I think the fact that Vingegaard was 
was let go by his rivals is more notable than him being let go by his teammates. Do you think there was any element or there was much of an element of being let go? Do you think that what actually happened today was that everyone, maybe even Vingegaard himself, underestimated well, how good his legs currently are, how much he's improving in this race, and the fact that on paper, based on the data we see from the Tour de France and just the, the general level at the Tour de France, Vingegaard is a better rider than Roglic and he's a better climber than Roglic and Chris. So I, I just feel as though they sort of kicked a hornet's nest, really, um, by by allowing Vingegaard, by choosing him, anointing him as the guy who would go with 3.5 kilometres to go. I think... You know the time gap was of, of, of a minute or just over a minute to it was it was over a minute to Roglic and Kuss. Um, uh, one one o one to Roglic and one o five to Kuss. Yeah. Yeah, I think that will probably have surprised everyone in the team. Um, but it, I don't think there's any two ways a, a, a about it. I think it's caused them a bit of a problem now. Well, on the eve of the Angliru stage, possibly, but. Uh, Champagne another, problems, sweet, sweet yeah, I mean, worries. Exactly, you know uh, these sweet are, worries, as uh, Rog calls it, but champagne problems, as Taylor Swift calls it. Jumbo Visma's diamond shoes are a little bit too tight, half a size too tight. Carver <laughs> problems, not unlike the ones that Sepkus supposedly had when trying to step down from the podium the other day. I don't know. I don't. Well, know. we'll see tomorrow, won't we? That's the, that's the fascinating thing. I mean, as you say, uh, maybe whether Vingegaard was underestimating how good he's going now in as we open the third week of the race well tomorrow will be the big big test won't it on the very steep slopes of the well the steep but also sustained slopes of the Angliru it's a fantastic problem for the team to have isn't it they you know they have got the the race in an iron fist and I can't imagine that they're gonna you know detonate their own chances uh, by riding against each other maybe the plan was let's win the stage today for Van Hooydonk and then assess and then we'll we'll slip, sit back and ride for Sepkus tomorrow and you know they'll re-establish the, the, the you know the the situation that the, yeah the hierarchy and I don't think necessarily I'm sensing a kind of you know, Machiavellian plot to unseat Sepp Kuss. Uh, no, I just think it's a really, really difficult situation to manage. Um, it's probably more difficult than we, in actual fact, realise. And we alluded the other day to the, well, the, the almost certain existence of clauses, bonuses in contracts. Mm. We'll hear later from someone who speculated this morning about who the sponsor wants to win as against who the other riders um want to win so I, I just think it's fundamentally a really really difficult problem Geraint Thomas told us the other morning that well as far as he's concerned Vingegaard and Roglic will both definitely definitely want to win um, on the other hand you've also got Sepp Kuss who I think one of, the key, one of the key reasons why he's in the position he is is a relative lack of pressure as against GC riders generally they come in with the weight of a team season on their shoulders whereas Kuss has been fully aware throughout this welter that should he fail should he kind of you might say revert to the norm of his previous GC performances on the rare occasions when he's ridden GC then the, there were two other riders waiting in the wings I mean there's also an element Lionel uh, of today's stage and I know a lot of people pointed this out I saw 
our friend Dan Martin, Dan Martin, point this out on Twitter that today's stage didn't suit Sepp Kuss and it suited him even less um, with the way it panned out with the break not really going and then mm. I guess uh, I guess Jumbo Visma got to a certain point in the stage and well they, they decided to really pull hard on that already short leash, didn't they? So it was very fast. It was fast to the to the foot of a very explosive final climb which doesn't suit Sepkus. That said, um, we hadn't seen Sepkus concede any ground on a climb, really significant ground, um, and he looked to be struggling a little bit in the closing metres today. Would you say? Possibly, possibly, yeah. Not really enough evidence there, but if there is a little chink, uh, the Angley route tomorrow would you know, expose that a bit more ruthlessly. I suppose the thing is, you know, they're all elite athletes at the top of their game and they've all got something huge to ride for. I mean, Roglic is trying to win a second Grand Tour in the season. He's trying to equal the record for uh, the most welter wins uh, for Roberto Heras has. Uh, yeah, he does. The, the asterisk is is in a sort of a very light grey. Asterisk in pencil, I guess. Um, Roglic, uh, sorry, Vingegaard is trying likewise to become the first rider since Chris Froome in 2017 to win two Grand Tours in a season and, and close in on completing the set. You know, if he one day wanted to go to the Giro and try and win that. And Sepkus, who knows, this opportunity may never come round again for Sepkus. Um, you know, notwithstanding the fact that he is a support rider for Jumbo Visma and there's a couple of people currently ahead of him in the pecking order. Uh, just the stars aligning in this way for him again. It's a, you know, it could be a long shot. So they've, they've all got a huge um, incentive to be the one that stands on the top step. Possession is nine-tenths of the law. At the moment, Sepkus is in the lead. I think today you can, you really can uh, discount the idea that Vingegaard has attacked his teammate or, you know, there's there's just... The, the aim of today, I don't think, was to try and gain a load of time on Sepkus. It was to, it was to win the stage and uh, in, ensure that, 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 you know, they didn't drag away anyone else dangerous. Um, and the... the, the the difficulty is that the time gap was significant enough that, well, there's now only 29 seconds between the two of them. And 29 seconds really, you know, is a very short amount of road on the Anglira, isn't it? I mean, that could open up quite quickly in the final kilometres tomorrow. So it does make Sepkus a lot more vulnerable. And of course, you know, Vingegaard and even Roglic, they wouldn't be able to hang about if other riders start attacking further down the climb. So you're right, it's, it is going to be tricky to balance. Uh, but I do think that they'll ride for Sepkus's red jersey until it's somebody else's red jersey. Lionel, just to add one more incentive to that list you gave us a second ago, incentives for the various Jumbo Visma riders to want to win this welter. Um, I was thinking earlier about sacrifices. We hear a lot about this from riders. We always hear it. We hear it more and more, in fact, um, because, as discussed many times and a lot during this welter, it's common practice now for riders to spend a long time away from home and to go on these high-altitude training camps and you know when they crash out of grand tours 
um, early on. This is often the first thing they mention, you know, how much I sacrificed. Remco Avenepoel mentioned uh, how much he'd sacrificed the other day when he was sort of licking his wounds um, after losing all that time. Primoz Roglic is, is the rider, I think, who sacrificed probably the most um, in the sense that he is the only one of these three who spent an extended period at altitude before the Vuelta, again, away from his wife, family, and that was a sort of concerted effort to prepare for this Vuelta, whereas Sepkus went home and well, spent the, the period um, between the Tour and the Vuelta uh, at home in Andorra. And Jonas Vingard also kind of went home. He spent a bit of time in Switzerland, but not at, not at altitude. So I think um, on that score, Primoz Roglic is the one who sacrificed the most. I don't expect that to necessarily influence the Jumbo Visma direct sportive decisions by any means or, or necessarily even the way Roglic him, himself rides. That said, um, Roglic is a attack I thought that was a bit of a shot across the bows it also left Kuss kind of isolated okay Attila Valter wasn't too far behind uh, and it was very you know it was a, a kilometer from the finish um, so if Kuss had had a problem there it wouldn't have been too disastrous I don't think but I thought it was a, a strange move and I also thought it, it revealed Roglic's current condition i.e. that he's not as strong as Vingegaard and I don't think he's been as strong as Kuss on most of the big mountains and I think it would probably be naive to think that he will be tomorrow on the Angliru. You talk about sacrifices Daniel I mean Roglic sacrificed a place in the Tour de France as well and even if he wasn't going to be the team leader you know he would have gone in as a kind of a very good backup for Jonas Vingegaard poised there if anything happened so you would imagine that you know part of that deal was look you'll be the leader for the Giro and the Vuelta and Sepkus has kind of put a bit of fly in the ointment there. So it's not, I mean, the presence of Vingegaard is one thing, um, but, you know, Roglic's, uh, Roglic's difficulty, I guess, is that no one could really have foreseen that Sepkus would get himself so comfortably into the red jersey and still be in this position with just a few days left to go. So, yeah, I mean, I'm, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's for Jumbo Visma to sort out. I suspect the climb tomorrow will have something to say as well uh, but these are the sorts of problems that I mean three quarters of the teams in the world tour I mean just could not uh, well they're just never gonna have to cope with are they I mean this is this is extraordinary really Lionel just a, a few other things to mention in dispatches um, UAE's tactics look very strange and uh, Finn Fisher Black was not the guy we expect the UAE rider we expected to be attacking and finishing second behind uh, Jonas Vingar. That was, um, well, we heard him earlier say, sort of suggest it was not a mix-up, but he initially intended to be kind of setting the pace to try and bring his leaders back to Vingegaard. He found himself off the front and was then told to basically carry on. Um, he's obviously a, a very promising rider. Um, just the sort of latest to roll off the UAE production line and um, they've got so many good young riders but um, yeah it's, it's you know we're almost we're, we're in danger of forgetting everyone and everything going on at the shoulders of Jumbo Visma behind Jumbo Visma because they do seem to have feel like they've kind of colonized the race for the for the top three places well, they have, and the difficulty for UAE Team Emirates is that uh, their best place rider, Juan Ayuso, is over two and a half minutes behind, which means that it has to be a really big, concerted effort 
or it has to be several smaller efforts. And they didn't manage to pull off a, a smaller effort over the weekend. And they're probably just, well, it just left them too much to do. And the fact that it's three riders from the same team ahead just makes that even harder to, to figure out a way. But clearly they didn't have the legs to respond either to Vingegaard. As I said, you know, that was the move to try and react to. Yes, he's clearly the best climber in the world. Uh, he may be now riding himself back to something approaching his sort of Tour de France form by this stage of the welter. Uh, certainly going a lot better than he was in in week one but still to that was the moment to be alert and to to try and make a move but no one was able to and just one other thing Lionel um, it relates to well this morning the start and some of the conversations I had this morning at the start Kian Oterbrooks who well we've been pronunciation police the Again, this time your Irish pronunciation of Kian wasn't up to snuff. Apparently, Kian, Kian. Um, I'll tell you. I, I forgot to tell you about that. Yeah, Lionel's, Lionel's <laughs> exasperated completely. It is kind of the pronunciation police can be slightly exasperating, kind of. And um, oh, I we, mean, we, depends which officer you get. You know. Yeah, and, yeah. yeah. Um, anyway, well, our, our Welsh, our Welsh listeners have got in touch to say that in in Wales it would be Kian. So, uh, yeah. I mean, I don't want to. In in Watford, they wouldn't they wouldn't get it right. So I'm, no. I'm you know. I mean, I often say, you know, my family's my, we've all my family's been getting our surname wrong for generations, um, and I only recently rectified that since moving to Germany. Um, anyway, Lionel, um, just on our friend, um, the young Belgian riding for Bora Hansgrohe. And we've been talking a lot about his saddle sore. Now, something that has not occurred to me, but I was was sort of elucidated to me this morning by Bernie Ice or the Bora Hansgrohe Direct Sportive, is that saddle sores are becoming more common among World Tour professionals, Grand Tour riders, Grand Tour leaders in particular, because of the amount of water they are pouring on top of their head in stages as they become more and more aware of uh, the importance of controlling body temperature that you'll have seen them it was a big feature of the tour de france and particularly domestique sort of pouring water over their head and bernie said that this leads to them you know riding whole stages with a wet with a very wet chamois and this causes a lot of problems uh, and for kian Uzebrooks, it's caused or certainly exacerbated this saddle sore that we've been hearing so much about um he did okay today he finished 12th one minute 13 down on jonas finger and remains Ninth on general classification. This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in zero sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. El ritmo de la vuelta. The rhythm of the vuelta. This is El ritmo de la vuelta, in which we toboggan across the main dance floor of a dubious Spanish provincial discotheque, probably called something like Ragtime or La Casa del Loco, on a jamón ibérico 
glazed with embrocation oil in tribute to sometimes catchy, frequently appalling official songs of previous Vueltas. The year today, Lionel, is 2004 when the official soundtrack was laid down by Asturian artist Melendi. In his youth, according to some sources, Melendi was a classmate of Fernando Alonso. He also played football for Real Oviedo. His music career began when he and a group of friends formed a band called El Bosque de Sherwood, or Sherwood Forest. But it was a few years later that Melendi's Con la Luna Llena, or Under a Full Moon, was selected as a 2004 Vuelta Anthem. It had been a rough year for Spanish cycling, with the former Kelme rider Jesus Manzano making outlandish claims about a doping plague ravaging Spanish cycling in Ass newspaper. Happily though, come the Vuelta, Spanish hearts were filled with glee as, get this Lionel, their riders filled the top 10 positions on the final GC and 25 of the top 30. How inspired they were that year to silence the detractors. The American Floyd Landis was one of the few foreigners to threaten the Spanish monopoly. He will lead his gold jersey for five days, but it was Landis's former US Postal teammate Roberto Heras, now riding for Manolo Saiz, Liberty Seguros, who would finally prevail narrowly over the revelation of the Vuelta Santi Perez. Perez, who would unfortunately soon fail a test for a homologous blood transfusion, like his phone act teammate Tyler Hamilton. One of several unsavory footnotes. That otherwise triumphant Vuelta for the Spaniards. Lionel, it was a triumphant Vuelta. It all, el- all, all was well that ended well in 2004 in Spanish cycling, isn't that right? Mm, yeah, they were funny years, weren't they? Uh, the, this was, uh, I mean, you mentioned this, the Santiago Perez thing. That was, uh, well, that all blew up, didn't it? And, and Tyler Hamilton, who had won an Olympic gold medal, there was uh, the, they were teammates on the phone. Um, I mean, when you look at that top, uh, I don't want to defame everybody here, but Santiago Perez, Francisco Manchebo, Alejandro Valverde, Spanish cycling was, was, was flying high. So Tyler Hamilton told me, and this is documented in my Jan Ulrich biography, that his best guess was that Eufemiano Fuentes, the infamous gynecologist, uh, mixed up his blood and Santi Perez blood, which is why they both tested positive um, for homologous blood transfusion. But Lionel, I also mentioned Manolo Saiz. Mm. Let's hear from Manolo Saiz, shall what? we? He was at the start this morning in Torre la Vega, and I spoke to him. Wow. Yo creo que todo el Jumbo Corredores desean que Kuz, pero posiblemente el sponsor desea que Vingengar o Roglic. That was Manolo Saif um, from Torre la Vega, just up the road from the start today. There he was telling me um, that he thinks the sponsors at Jumbo Visma might prefer Vinengard, he called him, and Roglic over Kuss. He says the riders, though, have to manage it themselves tomorrow in the Angliru. Um, that could be the only place where it well, may go wrong for Sepp Kuss, but if he wins, it'll be just desserts for everything he's done. What, what, Lionel, what's it the was basis for that? What's the basis for saying that the sponsors would prefer 
Vingegaard. I think Manolo Saez is one of these chaps, one of these fellas, always was, who enjoys stirring the pot. He's from the, I mean, he's from the Patrick Lefebvre kind of generation, isn't he, of, of team bosses and also um, the, the Patrick Lefebvre school of, of sound biting, isn't he? I mean, I would, I'd go, I'd go maybe the other way. I mean, what would Cervelo, the bike manufacturer, they would probably love a Sepkus win. You know, uh, something for for the American audience, the American market. You know, it'd be a real sort of boon for American cycling. The whole sort of ethos of the team, which is supposedly condensed into this one hashtag: win, winning together. Mm. Perfect perfect solution to win with a, a different rider from the other two grand tours and um, but it was it was it was quite amusing line of watching Manolo size i won't say bowling around the start this morning but um i i first sighted him this morning outside the movistar bus uh, movistar of course being the sort of well the, the successors to his arch rivals Manolo size built his life and career around this feud with what was then Banesto, he was the manager of the Onfair team. When Remco Evenepoel had just signed in, Manolo sort of chased him back, brandishing something that he wanted Remco to sign, but he was sort of, he pursued him like a mankini-clad tifoso, <laughs> only to be brushed off by Remco, completely brushed off like an embarrassing uncle. And um, and then finally, he blocked our, he blocked our way out of the car park um, while having a picnic out of the boot of his car and uh, with some of his friends and family members so we were late leaving at the start this morning because Manolo Saez's picnic wow I mean we should probably do something on on say and, and Manolo Saez because he's I mean I've never spoken to him but you know he was a hugely significant figure in the kind of rebirth of Spanish cycling wasn't it I mean Pedro Delgado kind of kicked it off by winning the tour in 1988 before that really sort of internationally Spanish cycling had been really in the doldrums hadn't it and Manolo Saez didn't have a, a cycling background he'd not been a rider you know he came in totally from left field he managed to persuade the Spanish National Lottery for the Blind because that's what Onsay was to sponsor the team they did so for a long time 1989 to uh, around 2003 I think it was because in 2004 they became Liberty Seguros uh, you know obviously the Vuelta was a very important race for them they won it a few times at Melchior Maori in 1991 and then Laurent Jalabert and Alex Zula in 95, 96 and 97 and in 95 Lionel they came pretty close to the clean sweep that Jumbo Visma are attempting I think they finished first third and fourth in the Vuelta general classification that year that's right, they did with Jalabert, Brunil and Maori. Now, uh, obviously, this is also the team that really kicked off the entire Operation Puerto doping scandal because uh, Saez was arrested with Dr. Ufemiano Fuentes, wasn't he, in Madrid. And it was the Liberty Seguros team that was the first big casualty of that doping scandal. And the extent of that doping was uncovered. I mean, so I don't know. I mean, we joke about the pronunciation police and, the, uh, and what have you, but I mean, Manolo Saez brought the real police into cycling. They did indeed, Lionel. They did indeed. Um, Lionel, on Jumbo Visma, 
Now, Lionel, I've got a theory that I'm going to explore with you and the listeners and whoever else is unfortunate enough to sit in the guest hot seat this week. Um, I mentioned last week that talk we would we would maybe dive into the physiology of Sepkus and what he's attempting to do. Of course, this is his third Grand Tour. It's highly unusual for riders to do three Grand Tours in a season, and certainly, well, no one has ever done all three and won one of them. I said we talk about the physiology of it, and I also mentioned this Norwegian coach um, Olav Alexander. Who's um, gained quite a reputation in triathlon, and, and his theories on specificity and how really you should do in training what uh, you, you that you're called to do in competition. And it's naive to think that you you can succeed by not doing that. Um, it made me think about athletics, Lionel, and marathon running and so on and so forth. How cycling is quite unusual in the sense that we have riders who do grand tours. They do one-week races. They do one-day races. Um, even, you know, a, a grand tour specialist like Primoz Roglic. This, re- this season he's competed in one-day races. He's done one-week stage races. He's done grand tours. Now, I said, well, Sepkus is winning this Vuelta a España, was winning it a couple of days ago, and maybe it shouldn't be a surprise because he's practiced riding Grand Tours twice this year. Uh, maybe Grand Tours are the perfect preparation for Grand Tours. Radical. It is radical. It is a radical theory. Um, however, you're going to have to indulge me for the rest of this week because I thought it might be an interesting idea to explore with people who know much more about these topics than us. So, Lionel... Today's going to be the first in a series that's going to last until Sepkus loses the red jersey, which could be tomorrow. <laughs> um, <laughs> it is today's Encuentro del Here we go. It, it is today's um, Encuentro del Día, and it is with a coach. And, mm, he is the coach of Egan Bernal, notably, and other riders are Ineos Grenadiers. His name is Xabi Arteche. And I spoke to Xabi this morning at the start, or it wasn't this morning as we've established, about precisely this. Will, in 10 years, everyone who wants to win a Grand Tour prepare by riding solely Grand Tours? El Encuentro del Día, the meeting of the day. Yeah, a lot of people is talking about the, if it's uh, doable or not to do three Grand Tours, no? Now maybe not a lot of people does three Grand Tours. Probably the last one it's been uh, the Ghent doing uh, three Grand Tours. And now everyone is talking because uh, Sepp Kuss is uh, doing the three Grand Tours at high level and leading the Vuelta, no? Not so long time ago, big riders, they used to do the three Grand Tours. My idol has been Marino Lejarreta, always. And uh, he used to do the three Grand Tours. And he used to perform well in three Grand Tours. Uh, probably... Uh, not winning, but being top ten in the in the three grand tours and winning some stages here and there. So personally, I think it's uh, it's doable. It's more maybe for me the biggest challenge is psychologically. You know, I think um, people need to be really convinced to uh, to do it because it takes a lot of energy, not only racing, also preparing the grand tours, doing a lot of altitude training being uh, out from home, being really strict with the diet, uh, nutrition and everything. So for me it's more challenging psychologically than physically. I think these guys, the guys that are top level, 
the engines they are ready to do the three grand tours but it's more to first of all to to plan and i think jumbo they did well for sure he, he had planned to do two grand tours and uh, i will say the three grand tours because the program uh, the race program sepkus had before going to the to the giro it was really light so for sure he's been already thinking from last year to do the three grand tours yeah and he's been performing really at high level in the giro and in the tour and and here it's been to be there i think it's because his legs and uh, and also consequence of the of the team tactic no he took a he took a break took a couple of minutes in on gc and uh, and now i think um, yeah tactically they are strongest team they, he has a second and the third on gc they are not going to attack him he he deserves to be there and uh, honestly for me he deserves to win and probably is going to open the eyes to the people that uh, is 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 doable no but for me what what sepkus is doing hats off for him because uh, because it's something uh, to admire but uh, but i think yeah it's it's, it's really difficult to do to do the three grand tour psychologically you can see what i mean that in athletics for example marathon runners they don't do a marathon then a 10k then a half marathon then a 3000 meters yeah. they just do marathons and then maybe in a different phase of their career they move to a different distance so if we talk about specificity it's not so crazy is it to suggest that what currently happens in professional cycling is a bit strange yeah i mean the, the grand tour riders they have a different conditions like uh, like you said no from uh, one day uh riders the classic riders or the and uh and these guys they have a different recovery they are they are ready to to recover really well and really fast so um at the end if you see the grand tour riders they are not so many in the in the peloton they are just a few and they are always in the front the same people uh same people will change because th- some people will start uh, retiring and some new riders they will come but if you see the top 10 of the grand tours it's uh, it's similar people year after year so uh yeah like you said the specificity of the of the uh, of racing is, is is really important and also the specificity of of uh, training i will say you know if uh, it's really important to have a good control of the workload in the in the training to arrive in the in the best conditions to the races but but if you if, if you want to be a grand tour rider you need you need to race the grand tours so we've seen many many times people performing at really high level in one day races and also in one week races but they are they they are never at this level in the in the grand tours no because they don't have yeah the the ability to recover and be performing at the same level in the third week or in the first week of the of the grand tour and uh, yeah and i think sam kus is one of them no that uh, we see always him um, performing really well in, in the third week of the of the races last thing so in the reason again to talk about athletics the reason marathon runners mm. they don't well they don't target a marathon every week it's maybe it's mainly to do with the impact of running but in terms of heart and lungs you recover from a grand tour you can recover from a grand tour in a few days can't you physically yeah yeah i will say that the these guys they recover pretty fast no from the from from grand tours maybe the marathon is the, we know the athletics uh, the impact the the impact with the when they are running it has much more effect in the muscles so they need they need lo, they need long, longer time to 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 recover so i think it is different no but uh, 
but it's in cycling there is no impact and as, unless it, you don't have any big crash or, or something like this physically it's much easier to to recover to recover fast no it's not it's not yeah that that easy because uh, you need uh, you need time and uh, when you when you train lower you lose the condition and you need to build up again but yeah i mean uh, the recovery normally in cycling uh, comparing with another another sport is is, is much easier well, it's a great theory, Daniel. Uh, sample size so far, one, Sepkus. I mean, there are riders who uh, made riding all three Grand Tours in a season their thing. Marino Lajareta, Spanish rider, I remember in the 80s and early 90s. Shabby, yeah. yeah. Um, Adam Hansen, of course, who did this incredible run of consecutive Grand Tours, doing all three every year for, for years. I think he reached 20 in all. And Jack Haig, who we featured a fair bit, was doing, um, well... What did he do? He did the Giro, the Dauphiné, and then the Tour, which uh, Joe Dombrowski did as well. Uh, Sepkus this year has ridden five races. The UAE Tour, the Volta Catalunya, the Giro, the Tour, and now the Vuelta. You mentioned Primoz Roglic. He's not actually done a one-day race this year. He's just done Tirreno, Catalunya, Giro, Burgos, and now the Vuelta. So clearly there is a bit of a trend here. Think of the advantages. I mean, you know, they're, they're fairly obvious there's more time for structured training camps. There's less traveling between races. Do you remember when Larry Warbass was talking about preparation for something, talking about Benoit Cosnefois being sent off to do a couple of one-day races before a stage race, and it just seemed like an awful lot of you know, wasted energy, traveling, uh, moving hotels, and so on. So, yeah, I can see uh, with, with top riders, the structure and the consistency and the, the knowledge that the, the plan is just these big blocks of racing. You might be onto something. Maybe a career in coaching awaits, Daniel. Well, we didn't we didn't hear it there because the, the conversation with Shabby it could have gone on for hours because we, we talked about lots of things. Um, but you know, Egan Bernal, I said, Shabby's his coach. Shabby said to me that Egan Bernal is essentially here at the Vuelta, um, using it as a training camp. It's to prepare him for next year, um, and. You know, this is because generally professional cyclists at the moment these days, they, they tend to work in these three-day blocks. Um, they have th sort of three days on, then one day off where they either don't ride or it's an easier day. And Jabby agreed with me. I sort of said that it's not great preparation, is it, for Grand Tours, that pattern of training? And he said, no, exactly. That's why we've got Egan here at the Vuelta, because that is perfect preparation for a Grand Tour. OK, even a Grand Tour that he's going to do next year, you know, months away. But um, I, th I think it's an it's just about worth exploring for another few days I also spoke to the Greek coach at Pseudo Quickstep, Vasilis Anastopoulos, um, about precisely the same thing, Lionel. And he sort of reaffirmed that, that the only real barrier to multiple Grand Tours in the season has been the mental one. Because, you know, as we discussed there again with Jabi, physically, the riders recover very, very quickly. So, you know, watch this space. I just, you know, 10 years ago, 19-year-olds, 20-year-olds winning Grand Tours, contending for Grand Tours would have seemed like a very, very radical idea. Um, and there will be something like that. Ten years from now, there will be something like that, which previously was considered crazy, um, absolute lunacy, that will be de rigueur. Lionel, once upon a time, the climb that the Vuelta a España is going to uh, take on tomorrow was considered lunacy, heresy, barbaric now it's on the route frequently it's called the angliru 
Alto de Langliru, and you're going to tell us about it in just a minute. After Lionel, we've gone back in time, 10 years, 2013, uh, a young French rider named Kenny Elisande was struggling through his first Vuelta a España. Well, and then what happened? He won on the Alto de Langliru. I revisited that day with Kenny Elisande of Little Trek this morning. Kenny, take us back in time, please. Take us back, 2013, you're, I don't know, how old are you, 21? What are the images, when you think back to that famous day that you know we're talking about, the Angliru, what are the images that come cl most keenly, most clearly to your mind? Uh, the fog and uh, the public. Uh, there is a lot of public in this climb and uh, it was foggy that day at the top. And the Shimano car, because uh, I didn't know I, I would have won the race until I saw the, the Shimano car uh, like 1k to go or something like this. Shimano qui encourage hein, le, le coureur français. Allez, voilà, allez, c'est bon, bon, il va le faire, il va le faire, c'est bon. Oh là là, ça so, va être Because the radio was not working anymore, public was yelling and uh, well, you, could, you could not see 10 meters in front of Bian, or Bian. I remember in that Vuelta you'd had a really difficult time, I think maybe the day before. Do you have more vivid memories of the day before? Well, almost as vivid memories of the day before as the day itself. Yeah, I tried to, to forget the day before. <laughs> so, no, uh, it was in Andorra, actually. Last of the stage, I was sick. I could see, I was alone and I could see guy, you know, stopping in the car. And I said, oh, it was my first Grand Tour, you know. So you always know, I want to finish, I want to finish. So I arrived there just on time or, you know, on the limit, limit. And then the day after, the, in a bus, in a meeting, the DS, he said, Ah, Kenny, tomorrow, uh, today, you, you're going to go in the break. I was like, oh, I'm already happy to, <laughs> to finish my, my Vuelta, you know. I was sick, uh, antibiotics, you know, everything. And uh, so I said, yeah, okay, uh, I will try. But, you know, in my mind, I was like, yeah, just I want to finish this race. And then um, after 40k, starting to feel better and um, went in a good group of 30 and then, yeah, the rest is... Uh, sorry. 22 ans, un petit peu plus de 22 ans, 75 mètres, c'est fait Kenny Elisande s'impose à l'Angliru, c'est le premier Français à réaliser cet exploit um, The secret to riding well on this climb, if you know the secret? Ah, push. Push, I would say be light, because it's really, it's really steep. But yeah, no, they are so strong, the GC guys, they don't even need to be light actually. So yeah, just be strong. It's really need, like power, like raw power you need, you know, to, to climb this. So uh, as long as you're strong, like we saw, we saw through me, it was 70 kilos something. Uh, I was 53 at the time. So, you know, it's 20 kilo difference. So you just need to be strong. Like this guy on my right, Remco, if he is in a good day, or even if he's in an average day, he can do it. Also, he's 64. You know, it's just you just need to be really strong because this climb is uh, brutal. No, I am looking forward to for tomorrow just because to come back on this place, special memories. You know, like we are here 10 years ago speaking about this. So it is a special memories of my career and, and my life. You know, uh, I have uh, my name on. Uh, you know, there is a stale or something. There is my name uh, amongst great great champions of the past of history of cycling. So. This is for sure something I'm looking forward to. The numéro de Kenny Elisande s'imposer à Langirou à son âge. C'est super victoire pour le cyclisme français. Et maintenant Chris Horner. La étape de mañana, la cena de ayer. Tomorrow's stage, 
yesterday's food. We'll talk about the, the gastronomic delights of this world. We'll do a whole summary, I think, because there haven't been too many. But you, I want you to quiz me one day about whether, generally speaking, I've enjoyed the food on this world. And we'll do a bit of a deep dive on it. But we haven't got time for that tonight. We're going to talk about tomorrow's stage now. We're going to talk about the Angliro. Stage 17, it's we're likely to be... Well, I keep saying it's likely to be decisive. Uh, if Sepkus survives in the red jersey this time tomorrow, uh, he may well have one arm in the final red jersey in Madrid, I would suggest. I think it's it's going to come down to the Angliru. And as you say, well, we've talked about it a lot on the podcast because it is the, the iconic climb of the modern welter, isn't it? And it's preceded by two first category climbs and the stage itself is another short one. So it's going to be a battle for that break. It's 124 kilometres in all the intermediate sprint comes in between the two first category climbs, so you know, un- unlikely that there'll be the same sort of Caden Groves-led handbrake on uh, on proceedings. Um, it could well be that a break goes, but we anticipate, I think, because of the difficulty of the final climb, it will be a GC battle at the very front. I just wanted to ask you, Daniel, can you name all of the winners in the Vuelta on the Angliru without looking? Uh no I can't no. I can't um, Chava Jimenez um, well I'll, I'll, I'll put you out of your misery yeah. here because uh, yes Jose Maria Jimenez in 1999 the first time Gilberto Simone in 2000 Roberto Heras in 2002 Alberto Contador 2008 and 2017 which was obviously his kind of final hurrah at the Welter uh, Wout Pauls in 2011 and uh, Kenny Ellison as you said in 2013 and Hugh Carthy in 2020 the lockdown edition Hugh Carthy who has been quizzed about that by various journalists various TV crews this morning and was not particularly enjoying it the the asterisk over well not over Walt Pauls at all but he didn't cross the line first that day that was Juan Jose Cobo who was later stripped of the win uh, that year it's going to be well it's going to be very interesting to see how it all plays out and uh, have we got time for a little clarifications corner on Remco's six jerseys? Because, uh, uh, oh, yeah, we got pelters for that. Yeah, as well, well we he, got I, was, I was right in that he hadn't worn the green jersey, but we both missed the quick step skin suit that he wore in the team time trial on the opening day. In our defense, it was so dark, we couldn't tell what he was wearing. I mean, he could have been wearing some kind of fancy dress outfit for all we knew back in Barcelona, the nocturne time trial. Uh, of course, couldn't wear couldn't wear the world time trial jersey in that because it's a team time trial. Um, but technically, he's now won the solidarity jersey, so he hasn't actually he hasn't actually worn it, I guess. But he has been presented with it, so goodness knows what that means. It's somewhere between six and seven jerseys for Remco in this welter. And also, just wanted to mention because we saw it on the TV coverage, uh, a really hard crash for Luis Leon Sanchez, who, of course, crashed out of the Tour de France very early on as well, on the stage from Po to La Rance. And, well, Sanchez did pick himself up and finished last, 150th and last, 19 minutes down. He's going to find it tough tomorrow, I suspect. Um, but this is his final season and his final Vuelta, and it would be a shame if that was the end of his, uh, well, a, a long 
um, Grand Tour career, which includes four stage wins at the Tour de France. And there's a bit of a Manolo Saez um, connection because he rode as a stagiaire for Onse back in 2003 and then did the first three years of his career with the uh, the Liberty Securitas team uh, riding under an increasingly dark cloud with the Puerto investigation. So uh, a career that really spans the generations in Spanish cycling, uh, but not pleasant to see him, you know, in, well, he looked uh, like he'd gone down pretty hard. Lionel, we'll be back tomorrow, in my case, from the Angliru. The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freed, and Lionel Burney. Que nos vamos de...